For the past uh, couple of weeks, we've been, we've been asking the question, why Easter? Why? What, what's, the, what's the purpose of Easter? And, and, and why did God go to all this trouble? I mean, why did Jesus leave heaven and the worship of angels and the streets of gold and the unbroken fellowship that he had with his father? Why did he leave all of that? To come here, to be born as a baby, to live among the very people who would uh, abuse him, accuse him, betray him, torture him, and then crucify him. Why, 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 did he, why did he do all that only three days later to come up out of that grave? So we've been exploring some of the reasons why. And week one, we talked about the reason. In fact, God just loves us. <laughs> He, he loves sinners, and so he was unwilling to leave us in a place of sin. So he, he sent his, his son to redeem us. And last week, we talked about the emptiness of religion. And the fact is, you can, you can adopt any strict moral code that you want to live your life by. And I'm going to tell you that you will always come up empty because religion by itself cannot save. Jesus didn't say you need religion. He said you needed reborn. You need to be born again. And that's one of the reasons that he came. Today, we're going to look at a couple of others. And as I was studying the passage that we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2, it reminded me of a story when Patty and I um, were first starting in ministry. We were pretty young. We were in our 20s, early 20s, and uh, we, uh, we ended up moving out of our house and moving into another house so we could be near the church we started working for. And the house that we moved in was not very nice at all. It was not very nice at all, and, and I don't mean to be a complainer, but is it okay if I complain for about 30 seconds? Okay, all right, and uh, and so anyway, this house you had to you had to walk with your shoes on. Couldn't take your shoes off because you'd get splinters uh, in your feet. I'm not kidding you. Wooden floors all splintered up, torn up, just bad. Um, <clears throat> you better not spill anything because it is going to run downhill. Like the floors, I mean, it's just that bad. Uh, the bathroom was so small, uh, you could barely fit in the bathroom, so we decided to take out some walls, but then we couldn't uh, get them finished. And so for a while, we had a very unique feature in this house, an open-air bathroom. It was great when church folks came over for Sunday dinner. Like, No, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was bad. It was really bad. And so, uh, you know, we did what we could to the house, kind of fix it up, clean it up a little bit. But we were praying and we were believing God for a new home. And so he, he, he took us through that season and he made us thankful for what we had. But uh, when that season was over, he blessed us with a new home. And this was an older house, but it had been totally renovated and had carpet and, and it was nice and, and, and had two bathrooms. And we were just excited to live there. And so here we are. We're young. We just had little Dave at the time. There's just three of us. And we got this new house and we're excited about it. And it really became a paradise for us. I mean, it was just a place of marital bliss. At least that's the way I remember it. Until one day, one day Patty called me. I was at the church, was just a couple of blocks away, and she called me pretty frantic. Something was happening at our paradise. Apparently, the door got left open, and the cat brought a snake in to our paradise. And she said, I'm standing on a chair in the kitchen, and you need to get home as soon as possible. 
So I wasn't that far away, so I got home, and I said, where's the cat at? And she, there she is. That's the tallest I've ever seen her on that chair. And so I said, where's the, where's the cat at? Where's the snake at? It's in the bathroom. So me, you know, being the brave guy I am, I run in there to rescue my family from this snake, and, and the cat is batting the snake around, and the snake is doing that slithering thing that it does, and they're going back and forth, and finally the cat bats it one hard time, and it goes under the sink vanity. Now what am I going to do? I gotta rip this vanity out to find this, this enemy of our souls, people. How many like snakes? Only you. I know this guy. I know this guy. And you are, oh, I can tell so many stories about you. But I'm not going to. But anyway, it's under the, so what do I gotta do? I gotta, I gotta look. So I'm, I'm pulling the vanity out. I'm trying to find the snake. Guess what? The snake has, it's not there anymore. So now, for weeks, We have the fear of where did this snake escape to? Did it go upstairs? Is it in our bedroom? Are we just going to wake up in the middle of the night with a snake on our forehead? What's going to happen? Our paradise had been turned into a place of doom, gloom, fear, death. You think I'm kidding. A couple of weeks ago, we found the snake. I think we've got a picture of it. (laughs) Right, Right here. The moral of the story is... A snake and what it brings with us or with it can, can really ruin our paradise. And we're going to see this in Genesis chapter 2. Let's look into some theology of Easter here. Genesis 2 and verse 15. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Everybody say, freely eat. They can, they can eat anything they want out of every tree of the garden, except we're going to see one here in just a moment, moment. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. In the day you eat of it, death is going to come. So the story of God and man doing life together begins in this garden. I want you to notice the goodness of God. He's placed Adam and Eve in this paradise, and he's given them one another to enjoy. And he says, hey, of every tree here, and there are many, he says, you can eat freely. You don't have to limit yourselves on how much fruit you can have. There's no calorie counting. You don't have to track your carbs. There's no keto here. God says, eat as much as you want. How many would say that's a good God? Right? He said, you have all you want, except, he said, hold on, except one. There's one tree. He says, don't don't eat that tree because if you do, it will steal your innocence. It will swing open the door to sin and death will follow sin into your paradise. Friends, I just want to say this. This is so important for us to understand. When God puts limits on our choices, it's never to harm us. It's always to protect us. I'll say that again. This is is the way you should live life. You should understand this. I should embrace this. When God puts limits on our choices, when he says, hey, don't do this, he's never putting them there because he's trying to withhold good from us. He's always trying to withhold pain from us. It's never to harm us. It's always to protect us. Unfortunately, Adam and Eve, they, they didn't believe this. 
And so look at the results, Genesis 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? This is what Satan always does. He questions the word of God. He always does. He didn't tempt them with, with adultery here. He didn't tempt them with money. He questioned the word of God. That's what Satan always does. That's what he's doing in our culture today. Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes, they will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, most of us know the story. Satan deceives Eve. Adam follows Eve into that deception, and God's beautiful paradise is introduced to a horrific team of two things, sin and death. Sin and death. This is why Easter is necessary. Although I think we fail to truly and fully understand what happened in this moment of Adam and Eve sinning, exactly what were all the spiritual implications of it. I think it runs really, really deep. But if you can just imagine that there was a, a type of spiritual transaction that took place, and Adam took the spiritual authority that God had placed upon him, and he forfeited it. He handed it over to Satan, sin, and death. You see, because Adam was the first man, God had placed this responsibility on him. And what he did with it had the ability to impact every person that came after him. And instead of choosing to follow God, Adam chose to sin. And a reign of terror started that day. God had called Adam to rule over the earth, but he took his rulership. He gave it to Satan and sin and death brought destruction to paradise. The Apostle Paul explains it this way in Romans chapter 5. Again today, this is not so much a shouting message today, but I want you to understand the theology. Why are we going to gather here? Why are we going to put so much energy and effort into next weekend? Why is this so important? The Apostle Paul explains it this way, Romans 5 and verse 12. He says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and then death followed it, death through sin... And thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So two verses here, two very important phrases. One, all sinned. So when I say that Adam's sin impacted all men, it's not because that all men are guilty of Adam's personal sin. It's just that his sin kicked open the door. His sin was like our cat. How many would say cats are similar to sin? Now we got two of them, but his sin opened the door to sin. And, and like our cat carried that snake in, his sin carried in death. And that death spread. So it's not that I'm guilty of Adam's sin. And this is really important because in our culture right now, we're seeing whole movements that would say, because our ancestors sinned, 
then we're guilty or accountable for their sins. And some people would try to use a Bible passage like this to justify that false teaching. But I could show you scripture after scripture that says, I'm not responsible for my ancestors' sins. In fact, one of the things that I love the most about following Jesus is that when I join his family, I get a chance to begin again. Do you hear me? I'm not mad at my family or anything like that, but there are some things that ran in my family, but they stopped with me once I met Jesus. How many are thankful this morning that your family tree got changed by an old rugged cross? That's the hope of the gospel. So we're not sinners simply because Adam sinned, but we are sinners because we sinned. Adam's sin opened the door, but Dave's sin propped it open. I'm accountable for my own sins. So are you. Isaiah 53 and verse 6. Let's look at some scripture. All we, someone say all we. West Virginia, we say all y'all. Okay, all we like sheep have gone astray. We, collective, have turned every one individual to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity or sin of us all. Romans 3 and verse 10. As it is written, there is none. Everyone say none. There's none righteous. No, not one. Romans 3 and verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So again, just to be clear, we don't bear the guilt of Adam's sin or anyone else's for that matter. But we all do have our own sin problem. We have a debt that we could not pay. Now, I drew your attention to two phrases. The first one was all sinned. We just covered that. Let's look at verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned. Death reigned. Paul uses this language of death reigned to paint a picture of death wearing a crown. Like a king, death reigned over every person that had ever lived. Death was our most feared enemy. It represented hopelessness. It represented finality. It represented uncertainty in darkness. No matter how rich you were, no matter how famous you were, how popular you were, how much power you had, eventually the enemy of death would come calling for you and it was an enemy that no one could defeat. So since Adam's fall in the garden, this duo of sin and death had been reigning. However, we got some good news, don't we? Because on Easter Sunday morning, Jesus would defeat both sin and death. The, 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 the cross paid the price for our sin, but the, the tomb defeated the enemy of death. Let's look at a couple more scriptures. Colossians 2 and verse 13. And you being dead in your trespasses or your sin. And the uncircumcision of your flesh he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all of your trespasses or your sins, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which is contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Friends, this is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, a holy and just God had already spoken in the opening pages of scripture and what did he say he said if you sin you will what you'll die 
If you sin, you will die. The soul that sins will surely die. God could not go back on his word. But instead of the death penalty falling on us, Jesus took it upon himself. Now some would say, Pastor, that sounds weird to me. Some scoffers and mockers of our faith would say, what, is God a, they would call him a cosmic child abuser. That God would, 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 would slain his, kill his own son for us. But listen, folks, the cross is the culmination of God's justice because he said someone has to die for sin. He can't go back on his word. He can't change that. He's already said it. God cannot lie. So the cross of Christ is the coming together of God's justice and his love simultaneously expressed by the death of his perfect son for the forgiveness of his imperfect people. I will to say that again. The cross was God's justice and his love simultaneously expressed by the death of his perfect son for the forgiveness of imperfect people. I don't know about you this morning, but I am humbled that God loves us enough to buy us back from our self-induced slavery, not with gold, not with silver, but He bought us, He purchased us by His own blood. Yes, sin brings forth death, but instead of us dying for our sin, Jesus Christ died in our place. Can someone give Him thanks and praise this morning? The cross is the justice of God and the love of God expressed at the same time that perfection would die for imperfection. That's what happened on Good Friday. But where do we go from there? I mean, he's dead. He's in a tomb. It looks like death. This, this, this king that had reigned since Adam has just taken another victim. You see, it wasn't enough for him to die because if he would have stayed dead, then my future, your future would look just like his. A grave. It's pretty depressing, isn't it? A tomb. Death. That would be our future. So Jesus couldn't stay dead. If he was God, and he was, he was going to have to prove it. And the Apostle Paul said, if he wouldn't have proven it, our faith would be empty. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 13. He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. And your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God. Because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he didn't raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Paul says, church, everything we believe, everything we teach, everything we confess, everything we cling to, it hinges on this one truth. Either Christ is risen or he's not. We know that he died on the cross, but why is this resurrection so important? You see, it was the resurrection that makes Jesus different than anyone else in history. 
When he walked out of that tomb on Sunday morning, he was saying to death, Death, you no longer reign. I know you've reigned over everyone before me. I I know you caused terror. I know you held people in the bondage of fear. I know you were the one enemy that no one could conquer. But King Death, I want you to meet King Jesus. (laughs) You see, on Easter Sunday morning, we see the power of God on display. We see that God is sovereign even over death. The resurrection validates everything that Jesus said that he was. When he walked out of that grave, he took the sting out of death. And that's why the apostle Paul says, oh, death, where is your sting? Everything changed. He rendered death defeated. And through this supernatural act, we literally see heaven touching earth. Supernatural God proved his power at Easter. And when you and I meet this resurrected Christ, he changes everything. Today we're in a church, a church that is a continuation of a movement that started 2,000 years ago. Can I tell you that this movement wasn't fueled and it's not sustained by a group of people sitting around mourning a dead Jesus. We don't come here every week to mourn a dead man. We come here every week to celebrate a risen, living Christ. Do you know the reason that the church movement caught fire and spread and is still spreading to this day is not because every Sunday was was just a funeral. It wasn't a funeral, but people were coming together and they were saying, "Look, look at what Christ did in my life this week. Look at what Christ did in my life this week. It was over and over again they were having encounters with a living, risen Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3. The Apostle Paul says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received. He gives the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And He was buried and He rose again the third day, again, according to the Scriptures. And now this this Jesus who was dead is alive. Look at verse 5. And He was seen by Cephas. Cephas is another name for Peter. So again, it's not that... That they visited his grave every week. It was that Jesus visited them. Peter sees a risen Christ. And Peter is transformed. It says that then by the twelve. The the rest of the disciples experienced a living Jesus. And they were transformed. Then he said that, that Jesus encountered over 500 brethren at once. After he had died. Came up out of the grave, he's, he's, he's there, he's resurrected, he's in his glory, he's in his power, and he encounters over 500 people at one time. Verse 7 says, after that he was seen by James. You remember, we just did an entire series on the book of James. That was Jesus' half-brother. When Jesus was on the earth, James didn't think he was God. He didn't think he was even special. He thought he was crazy. But once James had an encounter with the resurrected Christ, next thing you know, James said, you need a preacher? I'll preach. You need a pastor? I'll be a pastor. You need an apostle? I'll do it. I'll even give my life. For this message, what would take men and women who were fearful, 
that they would hide and they would run and, 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 and they would deny that they even knew Jesus before he died. But after he was resurrected, what would give them the boldness, the strength and the courage to say, yes, we know Jesus. Yes, we're going to preach Jesus. Yes, we're willing to die for Jesus. It was an encounter with the resurrected Christ. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus was not just personal for James and Peter and Paul and the rest of the disciples. You're here today, most likely because you've had an encounter, not with a dead guy, but with a living Christ. When I was a young boy, I was five or six years old, I Swisher Hill Union Mission Church, Worthington, West Virginia, Sunday night service, gospel singing group there. I can't tell you what they sang. All as I know is through the song, I had an encounter with the living Christ. Changed my life. You're here today. You got a story. Week after Easter, we're going to baptize dozens of people. You know why? They have stories. They had encounters, not with a dead man. I, I, how many think Abraham Lincoln did some pretty good things? Right? But I don't, we don't gather every week to worship Abraham Lincoln. He's a dead guy who did some good things. We gather to worship a risen, living Savior. He's still encountering people today. He's still changing hearts and lives. I don't know if you know who this guy is that we're going to show a video of in just a minute. His name is Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson is a professor of psychology and a clinical psychologist. He's a very, very smart man. He has a podcast. He's written many books. He's very popular around the world. Speaks at a lot of college campuses. He's not a Christian. Yet, he's not a Christian, but he studied our faith probably more than most of us have. Recently, I ran across this video of him talking about Jesus. And as we watch it, I want you to pay close attention to the words he speaks, the inflection in his voice, and the tears in his eyes. Let's go ahead and play this. Okay, so you can think about Christ from a psychological perspective, and the, the, criti the critic, my critic, this particular critic that I've been reading, said, well, that, that doesn't differentiate Christ much from a whole sequence of dying and resurrecting mythological gods. And of course, people have made that claim in comparative religion. Joseph Campbell did that, and Jung to a lesser degree, I would say, but Campbell did that. But the difference, and C.S. Lewis pointed this out as well, the difference between those mythological gods and Christ was that there's a, there's a representation of, there's a historical representation of his, of, of his existence as well. Now you can debate whether or not that's genuine. You can debate about whether or not he actually lived and whether there's credible objective evidence for that, but it doesn't matter in some sense because this, well it does, but there's a sense in which it doesn't matter because there's still a historical story. And so what you have in the figure of Christ is an actual person who actually lived plus a myth 
and in some sense, Christ is the union of those two things. The problem is, is I probably believe that, but I don't know. Okay. I don't, I'm amazed at my own belief and I don't understand it. Like, because I've seen sometimes the objective world and the narrative world touch you know that's union synchronicity and i've seen that many times in my own life and so in some sense i believe it's undeniable you know we have a narrative sense of the world for me that's been the world of morality that's the world that tells us how to act it's real like we treat it like it's real it's not the objective world but the narrative and the objective world touch and the ultimate example of that in principle is supposed to be christ but I don't know what to, I'm, that seems to me oddly plausible. Yeah. Well, but I still don't know what to make of it. It's too, partly because it's too terrifying a reality to fully believe. I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believed it. If you believed in the story of Christ or if you believed that history and, and let's say the narrative make meet, let's Both, say. I yeah. think, I think you, because when you believe that, you buy both those stories. You believe that yeah. the narrative and the objective can actually touch. You know what we were watching? A man have an encounter, not with a dead guy, with a living Christ. He's struggling with his own. You can see, I mean, he's so close, right? And he, he's, he's struggling. He's just, I think I believe that, but I'm not sure if I believe that partly because I'd be terrified of what, what that really means. You know what he's saying is, if Jesus is Jesus, it changes everything. Easter, in his mind, is this, Supernatural, meeting the natural. I just call it heaven touching earth. It's the same thing. Friends, as we prepare our hearts this week to go into Easter, I just really, really want to encourage you. It's, it's, been, in, it's, been, in my, it's been in my spirit the last couple of weeks that I think sometimes we just approach Easter like, like a Christian Memorial Day. And yes, we, we're going to gather and, and, and we're going to think about the cross and we're going to think about the price that he paid for us. But we got we to make sure that we don't stop at Good Friday. We get all the way to Sunday and, and then we realize the fact that, that we're serving and we're doing life with a, a risen Christ. So it changes everything. What's our personal application? Well, we're, if, you're, if you're in Christ, you're totally forgiven. Your cross or, or, or your, your sin was nailed to that cross. You're totally forgiven. It's totally taken out of the way. Therefore, we need to live like it. Don't let things like guilt and shame and condemnation and self-hatred just pull us down and depress us and steal our joy. We're totally forgiven people. Unrighteous people have been made righteous by the blood of the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Now walk in it. What's another personal application? Death 
has no power over us. Do you understand? If we are, if we're in Christ, if we're believers, I know no one's comfortable, no one's racing toward death. But today, our reality is, is that death is defeated. Death no longer reigns in our lives, nor the fear of it, because we have a new king. King Jesus has taken the sting and the fear out of our death. And so when our bodies do die, I'm out of here. We are just stepping through death into eternity. What else does it mean? What else, what kind of personal application, practical truth are we saying? If you're grieving today, the loss of someone in your family, a friend, if they died in Christ, you have a family reunion waiting for you like you have never dreamed. Heaven is not a place of death. Heaven is not life subtracted. Heaven is life multiplied. And today, your mom, your dad, your grandfather, your child, your best friend, your spouse, whoever it was, they are more alive at this moment than you are right now. 